What's that sound? That is basically the power unit and the fan that controls the power unit. It sounds like it's getting ready to do something dangerous. It is. We are getting ready to print a pink elephant on my 3D printer. What? A pink elephant? A pink elephant. Why not? Just for fun. Yeah, just for fun. Hey, podcast listener. Even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable, location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. We are creating the outline, which will be the base plate of this pink elephant. So it's going to lay down a layer of material, and essentially that's going to be the sticking point. So what we had to do first was heat up the bed. So there's, there's like this spool, like the spaghetti string of plastic going into like kind of a heated thing moving around. What is that? It's an extruder, and it's extruding plastic. So it comes in the form of a spool, the ABS plastic, and when it goes into the extruder, it heats it, and it spits it out, almost like you're putting icing on a cake. But basically, that material is going on to a heated bed, and the reason that bed is heated is so it makes the material stick. The material sticks to the bed, and as it layers up, eventually you have a pink elephant. In today's episode, we're going to be talking 3D printing and what entrepreneurs need to know about it. Long-term listeners to the podcast will know that my business partner, Ian, enjoys building things from scratch. Now, traditionally, that's been race cars and motorcycles and bikes and things. But more recently, he's done it through a 3D printer, which is actually in his living room. So I'm in Austin at the moment, so I just thought it would be cool to ask him how his new toy works. Later on in this episode, we're going to be talking to two people who see huge business opportunities in the 3D field. One's a lawyer, so you're going to get to hear Ian on the phone with a lawyer, which I think will be interesting. And our producer, Jane, got in touch with one of the founders of the Pirate Bay file sharing website. So what does file sharing have to do with 3D printing? We'll get to that later in the episode. But for now, it's just me, Ian and some potentially toxic chemicals. We just fed your cat. This is right behind your couch. I mean, this machine is in the middle of your living room. Yes, pumping out the smell of melted ABS plastic, which may or may not be good for your health. Tell me a little bit about why you think these things are important. I mean, you probably didn't buy this just because you wanted to print motorcycle parts. You can go on Amazon and order motorcycle parts. So what was your motivation to bring this into your house? As you know, I'm an industrial designer. I went to school for that. And so I kind of got interested in making products. And the reason why this is interesting is because I can make products in my house now. And I can actually make products that I may have bought before. So an example of something useful that I made pretty recently was I have a GoPro also. And they have these little extension sticks that make it so you can extend off the mount. I know what you're talking about, a selfie stick. Exactly. (laughs) And so instead of buying that part, which you would traditionally do for... $25 or whatnot, I printed the part. Generally, the supply chain looks like this now in the United States. Is you order a part, that part is probably made in China. So it ships over on the boat and then it comes to your house. You know, costs a lot of money and fuel and time and all that stuff. And basically, I can just do that right here in my living room. And there are all limitations to these machines, obviously. You can only print a limited amount of materials, but as they progress, it's getting very sophisticated. Right. So, what do you need to give to the machine in order for it to print? 
Right now, it's fairly simple, but fairly complex, the kinds of files that you feed it. There's two different types of files. So one is the file that sets up the printer that basically tells it, this is the temperature that you need to get to. This is where you're going to start on the print bed. And then the other file is basically the STL file or what it's actually going to print the 3D model. So part of the reason that we've been fascinated by 3D printers, I guess in the past, you would make your model, you would send it to China. And they would essentially the equivalent of 3D print it. And in fact, a lot of machines in factories look like more or less 3D printers. So what's happening now is you're just sending that file direct to your living room behind your couch where your cat's getting fed and getting the same product, essentially. Yeah, or getting a very similar product. And I think what's going to happen in the future, I believe, is retail has been shrinking for a long time, and that's been in part to e-commerce. But I think the 3D printer is actually going to help create places where you can pick up parts. I don't know if retail is going to go completely away, but one idea is that retail becomes a place where you can pick up 3D printed parts. They run the 3D printer there. So let me just give you an example. When you go to Home Depot, there's not an aisle full of fans anymore. There's a computer and you pick your fan and then it's printed at Home Depot. So there's a couple implications. The first I think of is it could have a big impact on logistics. Like you don't need to go to China anymore, for example. Yeah. And then the other thing is Where's the IP coming from, the intellectual property? Who owns the fan? I wonder, could these files be traded like on like a Napster-type service where you're downloading these fans and printing them out in your living room? And then you could put up an ad on Craigslist that says... $5 fans just drop on my house. You know, I got the best stuff. So we're going to get started printing here or what's... We're going to get started printing here. And so hopefully it'll make some noise and we'll get to pick that up for the show. And who gets the pink elephant? You can have that. <laughs> one person who thinks this is the future is Tobias Anderson, Ian. He's one of the founders of the BitTorrent tracking site Pirate Bay. I'm sure all listeners of this show have heard of Pirate Bay. If not, give it a quick Google, which started operating in 2003. And our producer, Jane, actually spoke to him from his home in Sweden. So here's that conversation. From the beginning, we uh, received a lot of threats from industries like the movies and the music industries, which we ridiculed on our site. We published the threats and laughed at them and wrote funny replies because we we felt kind of invincible and thought that they would never be able to touch us. In 2006, we had a big police raid where they took all our servers and, and whatnot. So we were down for three days and before we got back up. Due to that raid, three of my friends went to prison and got huge fines. But the site is still on, so... You know, I'm really interested in this because I kind of agree with you, actually. But I'm interested in why you think 3D printing is going to transform things in the same way that sort of file sharing and streaming did. People didn't have to share files like music and movies, you know. They didn't need to do it in Sweden, uh, Movies and music was available pretty much everywhere, but they did it anyway because it was free and it was easy. If the same thing happens with things that you can print, I see no reason for uh, 3D printing not to go the same way as uh, music and movie sharing. Why? I mean, what do you see in it that is the same as file sharing and streaming? Well, the comfort of doing it your own, you know. Having a printer that can print out pretty much anything on your table next to you 
that's way better than going into a shop or you know ordering stuff and getting it a, f- a few days or weeks later. Of course, I want to do that. I want to print everything. We're not there yet, yeah. obviously, but one day we will be. Do you not worry that actually it's going to undermine innovative young designers who are going to have their copyrights for stuff ripped off? Have that happened today with music and movies? No, pretty much not. But, you know, if it happens, so be it. There will be uh, millions of more designers and millions of people that could uh, work on your design to make it better. So I see no problem at all with it. There is an economic problem with it that you as a designer maybe will go broke because everyone will print your stuff. But then, then it's, an, it's a problem of the economic system and not of the printing itself. Ian, do you think a community of potentially millions and millions of designs being shared freely across the internet is going to improve the industrial design community or or hurt it? I think ultimately it's going to improve it. I mean, I think on some level, of course, there's no stopping it. But I do think that firms need to think about how they can protect and also utilize their IP in this ever-changing 3D printing world. So Ian here, I have a note that says you called a law firm Alan from Ice Miller LLP to talk about intellectual property issues. Look at you, man. You're getting out there getting your journalism hat on. I'm talking to a lot of lawyers lately. (laughs) I'll tell you what, not always by choice, but I sat down with Alan from Ice Miller LLP and his firm actually specializes. I was very interested to learn that they specialize in IP for 3D printing issues. Really? Yeah. And it's not actually just about 3D printing. You know, we're talking about the machine here that's sitting in my living room. There's a lot of issues surrounding these machines. So the process that it takes to make one of these machines, the process that it takes to spit out the material, the materials themselves. Right. There's a lot of issues surrounding these machines and this industry. And so I sat down with him to talk about some of these issues. By the way, it's worth mentioning that Alan's got 18 lawyers working on this stuff. So he's probably seen quite a few cases come through. Now the technology has become cheap enough that consumers are starting to use it and small businesses are able to afford it. I think one of the interesting things that's going to come up in the future, and this is something that you obviously work on a daily basis, is intellectual property and how to protect that. So we see, or at least I see, with some of the smaller businesses, as you know, it's very hard to protect your designs because it's very expensive. As a first-time entrepreneur or somebody that's just starting out, what are some of the ways that we can help protect ourselves from what's going to happen, which I think we but no, which is these files are going to end up online. People are going to potentially print them on their own. So what are some of the things that we can do to help protect ourselves that's fairly cost effective for small businesses? So there's going to be two areas that I'll focus on on that loaded question, okay? (laughs) There is the traditional enforcement methods, and I'll talk to you also about the non-traditional enforcement methods. So if you are on the traditional method, which is there are some intellectual property mechanisms you can do that are cost efficient. So let's take, for example, if I may, the whole process. So you have, when I talk about 3D printing, there are five areas that people need to be wary of to be protected. There's the printing materials. There are the supporting materials. When I mean supporting materials, I mean, for example, as you know, let's say you're doing a pyramid and you're making an inverse pyramid. It's going to fall over. So what you need is the supports on the side that hold up the sides. And you also have the binders for some materials because, as you know, there are different types of 3D printing. It's not just a layer upon layer upon layer. Some are powders, and there's a thermal energy that will fuse them together or some binders that will fuse the materials together. There's all these different types of ways to do it. 
So you have that aspect. You have the 3D printer itself, the machine. You know, that's mostly, we don't have to worry about that because our people that are going to be doing it already are buying a machine from somebody else. Then there's the CAD file, and that's what the model, what I call the model file or the CAD file, and that's what people will be focused on, I think, that are mostly startup entrepreneurs, and of course the printed article at the end. So on each of those, they can have different protections. The printing materials, because there's only about 100 and I think about 150 for rough numbers, materials that can actually be used in 3D printing. So a lot of entrepreneurs, as they're trying to decide what part of it do I want to get into, material is where the big play is. There's just not enough materials out there. So let's say they want to go in materials. One of the ways they can protect it is they just keep it as a trade secret. Think of Coca-Cola. Coca-Cola, the formula for it, Never been patented, never been copyrighted. It's protected in a black box somewhere. Right, probably behind a, a painting or something like that, I would imagine. <laughs> exactly. And nobody really knows what it is. So you can do it like that. So that's very cost efficient because you're just protecting it yourself. Now, can somebody reverse engineer it? Of course. And then you lose out the viability of the money to be able to get it for that. You can patent it. And patents are expensive because they cost around 15 grand to get everything done when it's all said and done. Let's go to the supporting material. Same kind of thing, patent. All right, 15,000, do we really want to do that? Probably not. And in the United States, there's a better mechanism for enforcing patents. When you go to other countries, like China, for example, not so good. You know, So I don't want to spend $15,000 and then all of a sudden not really be able to use and protect it. Right. On the CAD file... The CAD file, you would what's called copywriting. And copywriting, think of it as copyright is used for music or words, creative expression. That's the better way to put it. So, and, and software and CAD files are deemed a creative expression. And copyright, you can just write it, do your file, submit it for the filing fee, which is minimal. And you're talking maybe $1,500, $2,000 bucks for something like that. That, okay, still could be expensive, but also doable, much less costly than $15,000. The 3D printer, we're not talking about the printed article. You can do a variety of things there. You can do the copyright there. You can do the trademark. You can do a design patent, all kinds of things. That, again, is what we just talked about before, which is those are the more expensive things, but you can do something there. All right, let's shift to the non-traditional methods. All right, so let's say, for example, you could be like Tesla. Elon Musk has just said, you know what? I'm just going to out-innovate you. So you can out-protect everything. You can use it, but I'm going to be two generations ahead. Right. We have this wall in our office, and it's full of our patents, and we're going to let anybody and everybody use them. I think that's one of the things that I saw that they were doing. Yeah, exactly right. And the thing that's interesting about that is it's great because you're way ahead, but for entrepreneurs, if the existing technology supports generation three and somebody like tesla is at generation five well you know the existing technology is not going to all catch up right this is just a factor of who can run faster and elon is betting that he can run faster Exactly. Fashion industry, for example, is way ahead of the curve. They don't ever protect anything, and they're making 3D printed dresses. I think you're right to say that a lot of entrepreneurs, you know, they're in a good position, especially if they're a small company and they're nimble, to run faster than people and to try and out-innovate them. But I'm sure while you're working with these larger companies, 
they're much more in protection and defense mode. Yes. And so they're probably willing to spend a little bit more money because they're kind of in that business. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and, that, and that's well said because what they do is, is you know, there's some other non-traditional methods like you'd be like Microsoft, big monster company. They give you a product key. You can't use it unless you do a product key. That's a way an entrepreneur could figure out how to protect his or her product also. Or they live stream. So in other words, instead of me sending you the design, you copy it and then I don't know what happened to it. I don't send it to you until you actually have to use it. I know it's going in your machine and then it streams on that perspective so I control it. Or do you remember the old days with printers where they, you couldn't buy a certain ink? unless it was specifically from that manufacturer because they wouldn't match up, right? So those are some other methods you do it. The lesson people have to do is you just got to do something. You spend so much money and effort on this to come up with your great idea, whether it's the file or whether it's the end product. All I ask people to do is do something. Is it the, I'm going to spend some money and actually do something through the federal system in the United States and register it, you know? Or am I going to use some non-traditional methods like either live streaming or I'm going to give a product key or I'm just going to out-innovate you? And the interesting battle, Ian, is you and I, let's say you come to me and say, hey, Alan, got a great idea. I want to make this product. And you come up with the design. Fantastic. So then I take it and I make a CAD file because let's say you're not the software kind of guy. All right, I take the CAD file, and then you and I go to a printer company, and they make it. Now, that printer company is also going to have some input because they might have to figure out the right heat to do it at and all that. So who owns it? This is the big battle in 3D printing, which is you who came up with the design. Great. Me, I came up with the digital file. I also had some creative input. Or three, that the actual equipment manufacturer, the person who's printing it out, because they have to process it, you know, the parameters. And that's why sometimes you look at as great as we innovate and as far as we go in advance, Ian, the interesting thing is something like that, you find yourself going back to the basic and maybe doing a contract like this Uber is going to do for 3D printing. Look, I'm not going to be able to monitor every person that does something. I will make an effort, though. I'm going to have you sign a document, you know, and between you and me and the third party who's making it for it. Each of us wants to make money. And if we sit down and actually say, hey, you get a third, I get a third, or somebody else gets a third, or you came up with the design, so you get 50% or whatever, it's just sitting down and talking and putting it in paper from that perspective, because you get ready for the marriage, but you plan for the divorce, you know? Yeah. <laughs> right, exactly. And I think we've been talking pretty quick about this stuff, Alan, so I just want to slow down just for a minute here and just explain exactly what you were talking about there. So a lot of times what will happen in this process is, let's say I'm the designer, I will come up with a concept. It's some kind of cube, just to make it simple. And then I will need to go get that put into CAD. Maybe it's SolidWorks or ProE or something like that. I won't have that skill. So then someone has to put it into CAD. When they put it into CAD, they realize, you know, I can kind of foresee what's going to happen in the manufacturing process here. This isn't all going to be possible, I'm going to have to make some adjustments. So they make some adjustments in the CAD file. And then the CAD file has to go to manufacturing or it has to go to the printer. And the printer says the same thing. Guys, you've done a great job here, but I'm going to have to make some adjustments based on the materials or whatnot. And so we're going to have to change something. And this is, I guess, what you're saying about when ownership kind of gets sticky is that everybody's kind of dabbled in this product. But I think one of the answers here might be have people sign contracts, right? So all along the way, have people sign contracts. And if you go in with a design, this is clearly my design, but I guess it does get sticky because you can't police everybody through the process. 
Right. Or you could do the contract. An alternative method is you came up with the design. You would do, let's say, a design patent on it. I come up with the CAD drawing. I would put a copyright on it. And the third person who prints it out would then do another patent on the end product. Or we would all share in it. You know, so there's, there's ways. Again, it's the interesting thing or dynamic of you're trusting me with the work. I'm trusting then the next person with the work. Hopefully that trust in the beginning converts to everybody cooperating or translates to everybody cooperating. And if we can put it in a document, great. If we can't, there's some self-help measures like where you would do the patent, I would do the copyright, you know, that kind of thing. Let me give you a vision here and see if you agree with it and ask your opinion on what businesses in this position should do. So I see a future where you go to Home Depot. Instead of there being a stock of 20 fans on the shelf, there's one fan there and they say, we can print this for you. Just tell us your dimensions and your colors, et cetera, et cetera. And there's actually 3D printers in Home Depot and that's what Home Depot becomes. Are big businesses or businesses with inventory in Home Depot starting to think about creating intellectual property or preparing their intellectual property for this kind of inevitability? Yes, that is the wave of the future. It is conceivable that your children, my children, our grandchildren will go into a store and there will be no inventory. There will be just these printers. And so we see that already, for example, Dennis. If you go to a dental place and you need a particular tooth or a bridge done, they 3D print that part right there. So the answer to your question is yes. And so how will the big companies protect themselves? Well, they'll have a contract with Home Depot. You know, they'll, they'll put, go back to the document that says, hey, we get all this. This is all protected. And then they'll also, though, have to recognize that the ability to control this will become nearly impossible because what will stop you then from taking that fan and then you start Ian part two, you know, or Ian big box manufacturer. Right. What will happen? They'll knock on your door and they'll say, hey, you know what? You stole our idea. We'll come after you. And, and let's be realistic. He who has the most dollars has the greatest enforceability rights. You know what I mean? So they'll be able to try and enforce it against you versus if you're a small startup trying to go somebody else. You hit it early on when you sit there and said the challenge is, look, I got to spend 50,000 bucks. I don't have 50,000 bucks. Well, that's kind of what Tesla did. Tesla has the money though, but I mean, Tesla said, I'd rather use that $50,000 and put it back into innovation. And so then when you've copied that fan and you're starting to make that fan, I am then, the Home Depot's going back and say, oh yeah, you can go to Ian's place. He's got the Atari system, you know, the old Pong being back and forth. Now I've got the PS6 over here. So, you know, that kind of thing. You hit it right on the head there when you started to talk about, you know, again, the defense mode that these big companies play versus the offensive mode that these small companies play. And one of the other things that you said was about personalization. And that's a real advantage to these 3D printers because, you know, the supply chain was very long for a long time and it still is. You manufacture something potentially in China, it's designed in the United States, it comes over on a boat, it's a nine month process. I was in that business. It's very long, it's very tedious, and there's a lot of people involved. All of a sudden, now you have this printer in your warehouse, which is connected to your house, and you're doing short-run productions. You know It's costing a little bit more than if you made it in China, but you have this opportunity to personalize. And with that opportunity to personalize also comes the opportunity to circumvent patents and copyrights and trademarks and whatnot. So it is entirely possible, and this is how a lot of people get around patents and trademarks and copyrights and things like this, to just slightly tweak it. And so I think probably in the future, we're going to see that happening. And like you said, there's inevitability to that. When you have a fan in Home Depot, just slightly tweak it. All of a sudden, now we're around the copyright or the trademark or the design patent, and we've got a new product. So 
Alan, in your practice, I'm just amazed that you guys have uh, 18 people working on these issues. You don't have to name names here, but who are the types of clients that are coming to you primarily in this chain? So what we have is, interestingly, it's been probably three groups of clients. So you have startups that come up with this great idea and what you just identified, don't want to wait the nine months, you know, to come up with the idea, get it produced. And so they become somewhat of a let's say, a product development facility, and they've spent the money on the 3D printers and they'll make the product and they become more of an ideation place. You know, they sit there and say, here's what we do. This is the concept that will work for you. And we vetted it out. So now you, customer, go out and get it manufactured. So that's one group, these startups. Another one is the one that that company that actually makes multiple parts. So it'll be a molder. And the molder has the similar challenge which you identified Think of in plastics, you shoot plastic or resin into a mold and it gets heated up and then you get a part. Well, that mold has to be made and it's generally made out of metal. And so that metal mold will often take three, four, five months to make, as you just indicated. Very expensive, too. Oh, very expensive. And think about it, too. You can't go all these weird angles in a mold. You know, it's steel. So you got to go straight through, that kind of thing. So what they say instead is, let's make a prototype part to see if it'll work on the 3D printer. They wanted to shorten the cycle by which the product gets developed and produced. So you've got these molders who just simply said, I can be in front of everybody. I can be the Elon Musk, so to speak, of the plastics industry by just going faster. You know, not that I'm going to innovate everybody, but speed. We're a society of speed. Email everything, you know, Twitter, everything you have. You just got to get speed to everybody. And the third one are material developers, where I said to you before that we try to focus heavily on helping companies that have good ideas on expanding the amounts of material come up with a new type of material. For example, glass cannot be 3D printed yet, okay? Certain electronics cannot be 3D printed yet. And then what will happen is some of those companies will then join together like a joint venture where two companies come together to form a third company to do something. So those are the kind of clients that we do. Material developers, clients that want to just expand and speed up the process of manufacture, and the people that just got great ideas, you know, that are trying to figure out how am I going to monetize it? Because let's be frank, most people want to make some money. A lot of people want to also innovate and make a difference in the world. I understand that. But most people in the manufacturing industry want to also recoup their investment and make some money. We've been sitting here typing away for two hours and my elephant's still not done. But I'm actually holding something you made earlier. It's a pink cat. So yeah. <laughs> you're sort of attached to the pink <laughs> well pink is the color of the abs that we have and it's not going to run out for a long time the material lasts forever so right it seems like would you say that you know i'm holding this and i'm like wow this doesn't replace toys r us yet but it does seem like it could be a canary in the coal mine like do you think this is the indication of the future here yeah, I really do. I mean, I think the reason why you say it doesn't replace is because the definition isn't super good yet. And what I mean by definition is you can kind of see the lines of where it printed. Yeah, this is a homemade cat. You yeah, can... it would need a little bit of finish work <laughs> and it's only one color. They do make printers that have multiple colors. But yeah, I do think it's the canary in the coal mine. 
I think the fact that you can print replacement GoPro parts from your apartment and not have to go buy them at the store and involve a large supply chain is the future. It's interesting because, you know, if you say that you can do that and I'm like, well, you can do that, but it will be interesting when it's like, you know, the Apple TV interface and you just choose that you want a GoPro connector and then the humming sound starts up and 17 hours later you have... (laughs) (laughs) You're right. I do think that the software is a big limitation in the whole thing. I know 3D software, but you don't have to. So that GoPro part, I just downloaded that part from someone else that knew the software. You don't need to know the software yet. There's companies like Shapeways where you can order a part and then someone else will print it. So like basically outsource 3D printing manufacturing. Right. So there's ways around not knowing the software, but you're right. There is a limitation in the software. And I do think it will be interesting when normal people can manipulate 3D objects on their computer. That's cool. It's cool to hear about one of your hobbies. And thanks for bringing the discussion to the show. I think there's a lot more to be said about this. All the links to all the people you interviewed and helpful resources regarding 3D printing will be at this episode, tropicalmba.com slash 3D printing. Thanks, boss man. And, all right. Uh, see you next week. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.